1: Look at up. Listen, I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol.
2: Welcome to Yeah Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week, we are joined by returning guest, Dr. Ashley Mathias, who is a postdoctoral researcher and affiliate at the University of Swansea. Thanks for joining us, Ashley.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: I guess just to begin with, the last time we spoke to you, we spoke about memes, we spoke about moms. What, What have you been up to in the last few years?
1: So I've been just plugging along in my different research, doing more work on infrastructural communication in... And amongst siege cultural groups, as well as thinking about how media are reshaping relationships with ideology and, and that sort of work. And then also thinking about how gender plays a role in the circulation of propaganda and violence.
2: You published a report, a research brief with the Resolve Network, Atomwaffen Division and its affiliates on Telegram, Variations, Practices and Interconnections. I was wondering if you could tell us what you found when you looked into Atomwaffen on Telegram.
1: Yeah, so that was part of a larger research project. That's a comment I did. That's how I first got connected to Swansea University, the team there. And we did that with several groups and looked at both far-right and jihadist groups comparatively, as well as doing our own individual projects. So that one is my individual project. And it was just looking at how different Siege cultural channels or channels affiliated with Autumn Waffen Division were communicating with each other on Telegram and communicating within the channels um, and trying to really understand how they are networking Um, through the ideology and generating what I called in the piece the meta brand or utilizing the meta brand of Atomwaffen to kind of continue to establish and grow the network even though there's been a lot of pressure from law enforcement and governments around far-right accelerationism.
2: You are listening to 3CR on 855am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr.
3: Ashley Mathias. Ashley, as I understand it, Atomwaffen developed on another site called iron March which has since gone defunct how have things changed between I guess the earlier period when it was established and there was discussion on a, a public site like iron March to now when telegram has become uh, much more important to, to its communications
1: so I think one of the primary distinctions is that iron March would technically be classed as a as a I think the term they're using now is terrorist-run or extremist-run website, right? It's its own individual website versus social media. So obviously, it's there's a lot more publicity or publicness in the website piece, whereas Telegram is specifically meant to be more private and interactive. But it's some of the capacities are very similar, and some are very different, and that's not necessarily based on. The ideology, it's based on how the technology works, right? So the way a website works and the way something like Telegram works are very different and communication is restructured to fit how the platform itself works. So within Telegram, you have two options for channels. You have broadcast channels, which are like a radio. So the the moderator, the channel moderator speaks to the audience directly, but it's only that one direction of communication. And then you have what are called interactive channels, which are more like a posting board or forum where, where users can interact directly with each other. And what we found the way that these groups are taking up the use of those channels is that broadcast channels are used to share group branded information, messaging, flyers, really just curate for their users this organizational messaging. Whereas interactive channels are where users are debating and discussing and socially reinforcing the ideology amongst each other through their conversations and through their interactions. And so there's a lot of textual media, but a lot of visual media, always with the siege cultural groups, they have a real strong affinity for video and images, in part because their presencing strategy, how they interact with offline, is tied to a series of posters. So there's posters that they'll make that they then paste up places. In fact, when Autumn Waffen was first forming in the US, one of their favorite propaganda videos to make was videos of small groups of them going out onto college campuses and pasting up flyers. And then those get shared then broadly with the public, but also they get shared back in the channels as a way to reinforce that they're actively doing things. It's not just an online engagement, right? They're actively doing things out in the world and making themselves known. So they, they utilize that capacity through the organizational channels where they'll post up a flyer and then say, send us back a picture of you using the poster out in the real world or videos And then they get additional content to keep the channels going through that means. We also noticed that there are more established channels and less established channels, which shows that the network is developing, um, even in spite of pressure. And we could see that based on the way they were, the types of things they were posting organizationally. So, more established channels would interconnect other channels and post flyers that talked about group alignments and alliances, whereas the newer channels would post things like recruitment applications and, and basic messaging, Trying, you could see that they were trying to get their channel up to speed and, and grow the channel. So they would post linking things, but not as much. They weren't as such hubs for interlinkages as the established channels. And then in the chats, it really is very similar to like a Reddit or, or 4chan type of chat post, where there's a mixture of memes and videos and discussion, and sometimes really earnest discussion and sometimes really baiting discussions that were just used to think through the ideology, think through the engagement through specific types of topics. Like, what are you going to do after society collapses? Like, how are you going to protect yourself? So it reinforces the ideological substrate, but through social interaction. And that's slightly different than the way the websites would have worked, which would have been much more tied to traditional website formats where you're reading messaging posted via things that look like blogs and, and other things like that with, with maybe forum boards attached to it, but, but less integrated than it is in Telegram.
2: Uh- in the past few days, we've seen the arrest of Patrick McDonald, uh, a Canadian who also went by the name Dark Foreigner. He was Adam Atomwaffen Division propaganda producer. Uh, strangely, though, he was unmasked as being one of Atomwaffen Division's chief propagandists, I think, two years ago. What do you make of the fact that it's taken so long for an arrest to be made there?
1: I mean, there's, there's... Very big differences between what can be done legally and what you can know through something like OSINT. And it, I, w- I would imagine that law enforcement had to build the case that they needed to build in order to ensure that once the arrest was made, they could prosecute. And that takes more time than being able to find someone via technological or unmask them, as you say. And I don't know enough about what actually happened in the trajectory of that case. It may have been that he had been people may try to evade and that can take more time as well, but I don't know the specifics of, of his arrest. But yeah, I think it was even potentially more than two years ago because there was a connection there to fastest forge as well as Iron March. But yeah, so the, the law enforcement piece is slow in comparison to like online technology, emergent technology, and, and those relationships because of the strictures of, of law and the strictures of engaging law across borders when necessary.
3: Apart from, I guess, limited legal applicability, what do you think of the other limitations, I suppose, or also possibilities for open source intelligence gathering on these sorts of groups and, and movements?
1: I mean, I think from a research perspective, the possibilities, it's its very useful, right? People's access to open source intelligence can be very useful for figuring out what is going on and how networks work and how people are interacting and communicating and what they're doing, um, it's definitely something that's growing in use. But it but it is complicated because of that relationship. So I think it depends on on what the end goal of the intelligence is, as to what its utility ultimately will be.
3: Earlier, you made reference to the strong, I guess, aesthetic qualities associated with AWD and, and the network. How important is uh, branding to these groups, and how does it function generally?
1: Sure. So I would say branding is incredibly important. Autumn Waffen Division and its affiliates, all the ones we found stick to a very strong palette that is reminiscent of, but but adapted from the original Nazi palette. So red, white, and black, which are are colors that exude force and domination. They're very specific and they reutilize across the different divisions. They reutilize specific types of symbols and specific ideas, visual ideas. And One of the major benefits of that is that you don't have to be, you don't have to be a trained graphic designer to be able to then use those things to create your own material, right? It makes, it makes creation of material across various skill levels, age groups, knowledge levels, and access to tech easier. Or at least I make that argument in my paper. And the brand, like each individual group has its brand, but they're all tied back through visual ties to Autumn Waffen Division. So the color palette, the idea of the division badges, each each new local group, which is called a division, makes up its own badge that they then tag as their it's like their brand logo within the meta brand of Autumn Waffen. And and this is a way they can tie themselves to that ideology without being officially affiliated. Which in the article I argue is pushing towards a framework of leaderless resistance that is not the original like totally disconnected piece, but it is it allows them to be a flattened hierarchy that is disaggregated while still having a bit of connection to the larger ideological frame. So it approximates a a form of leaderless resistance where the groups aren't legally connected to one another, but they can share in the ideological resonance and the engagement from the, the larger brand.
3: Many of the groups that are associated with uh, Atomwaffen have been legally prescribed over the course of the last few years. What impact has that had upon both the network itself and how it chooses to engage with online propaganda?
1: So one of the interesting findings from what we were seeing is that it hasn't necessarily stopped the development, right? So legal intervention and prescription in multiple countries hasn't stopped new divisions from forming, hasn't stopped people from engaging. It has, however, become one of the narratives around their discussions and one of their engagements. And it's led to a very conspiratorial frame within um, engagements that we saw on Telegram where people would accuse other people of being informants or federal government plants as as a point of argument within a context when they disagreed with their commentary or ideological approach to things. So... We also see that it hasn't impacted their handle structure. So like if you look at jihadists on Telegram or social media, they don't use group names because the intervention strategies of both social media and law enforcement have pushed them to a point where they have to find other strategies because they're too easy to identify if they use group names or affiliated names related to jihadism. Whereas with the Autumn Waffen groups, They would create a channel with their direct name and then then a couple backup channels with like one character difference or a space around the name because one channel would get shut down and then they just reconstitute it with the slightly modified name. But they didn't remove the group affiliation. They didn't remove it conceptually or ideologically, which means they they don't feel under that much pressure yet that in the same way that the, the jihadist groups do from intervention so it's having some impact, it's something that they're engaging in, but it's not necessarily having the impact of stifling the development, at least not yet.
2: I guess the one convenient thing for these groups accusing each other of being feds is probably about a third of the time, if you accuse everyone, you'd be right.
1: Yes. I mean, it, it, it's it's not an impossible thing that that is the case, but it, it is in within... S- Far-right extremism and forms of extremism, there tends to be a conspiratorial core at the base of the ideology. And things like the idea of fed plants, and, and they have a basis in fact, right, largely speaking within the history of engagement these groups have had with law enforcement. But because of this conspiratorial core, right, things that are conspiracy-based narratives do well <laughs> within those cultures. And so I think that's part of it as well, and it also allows people to leverage communicatively, leverage power in a conversation by downplaying whatever that commentary is by by essentially delegitimizing it. You're, you're not you're not a real member. I'm a real member, right? So it's an interesting narrative as well as conspiratorial attachment.
2: Uh, I was just curious, more generally, in terms of doing this research, it seems like it has been a real shift in where these. Conversations are happening in terms of you know moving from websites to Telegram and things like that. I was wondering do university ethics need to catch up to where we're at in terms of the technology a little bit?
1: Well, I would say that's actually interesting because the most recent reports from Tech Against Terrorism indicate that in certain types of terrorism, so it's predominantly jihadist because that's predominantly classified as terrorism, they're moving back to terrorist operated websites. Uh, because of social media practices, but this is where we see a real split in how the intervention models work against the different ideological strands, which has a political basis as to who gets designated and who does not, at least certainly in the US, for a variety of very detailed reasons. So that kind of movement back, or at least the different movements is something that people have been starting to catalog, right? You push someone, you deplatform someone from a very prominent space. They go to another space, of, but find ways to interact still with the prominent space. As a matter of fact, Ashton Kingdon and I have a piece coming out hopefully in the next year that talks a little bit about how to evade content, how how people evade content moderation without technological means, how they do it narratively and and in their the way that they post. But then you have this movement to like Telegram, like the the far right extremist groups are still in the earlier part of the processes because they're not under the same kind of um, content moderation pressure, pressure from governments and things locally. So you start to see similar process, but in, in divergent paths, which I think there's a, there's a lot to be gained from thinking through how one works and then how the other works because the technologies, right, are, are neutral in the sense that they allow the same things for all users, right? So we're seeing how people deploy them and that's going to shape the available options. Right. To transit from this type of web based platform to a social media platform or back. And I think more, more interesting work could be done on those trajectories. And I think that's housed in the move to understanding, um, extremist online ecosystems, taking ecosystems approach to understanding where people are, where they're moving, how they're circulating information as a, as a function of technological rather than content as one piece of it, and then how the content works separately, I think is is an interesting move that encompasses this framework of which platforms where and how and why.
2: Uh, you've also written an- another piece recently, along with Amanath Amarasinam, Graham Macklin, and Mark andre Argentino for the Combating Terrorism Center, The Allen, Texas Attack, Ideological Fuzziness, and the Contemporary Nature of Far-Right Violence. Could you remind us a little bit about what the – Allen Texas attack was.
1: So the Allen, Texas attack was a mass shooter event undergirded by a individual actor who espoused on his social media extremist ideology, although it was not clear-cut which extremist ideology, which is literally what our piece is about, is trying to understand what that is. And he killed multiple people and hurt multiple people. He didn't he did not live streaming attack like some of the other attackers necessarily but it, it was very public in terms of television and there there have been videos of like police response and things that have circulated around it but it was just an absolutely horrific attack at a public mall an outdoor mall in in allen texas
2: it seems that uh there's been a shift in the way that these mass shootings are consumed by or a Discussed by the news media, by social media, whereas previously there would perhaps be a gun control argument with pros and cons. Now there is this need to get to the bottom of which side is to blame. I was wondering what you could say about the shift that you might have uh, observed in how mass shootings are reported on and discussed. And what was strange about the way that this mass shooting was reported on and discussed?
1: Well, because there's a larger contextual debate over oppression of ideas and free speech, and I say that in very prominent quotation marks, the free speech debates are are a particular strategy of far-right extremists in many, many ways as part of the culture wars, about who is being silenced and who is not being silenced, and then... You also add into that this idea of false flag violence that comes from conspiracy theorists tied to the far right, like Alex Jones, who claimed that the Sandy Hook massacre was a false flag government-planted operation that wasn't real, right, as, as an attempt to control society. Over time, that's been years. So over time, this media reporting has essentially had to respond to these sort of claims from different actors and, and incorporated some of that that framing of the larger Ongoing debate, which is problematic because it is reactionary. It's a very reactionary debate. So in the way that they're framing it, we saw people in response to the Allen, Texas attack, someone, one person says, oh, this is a far right attack. And then someone who is more ideologically aligned in the reactionary right says it isn't, it's a false flag. Right. And then then people start going and finding pictures from the person's social media, the attacker's social media to try and prove their point. And it becomes a point of debate about is the media reporting right instead of a point of debate about the violence of far right extremism and and how that is affecting everyday people on the ground. So it becomes a distractionary tactic that the, the media can be sucked into because of the interlinkages between social media and media reporting, I think, in many ways now.
3: Uh, in the article, Ashley, it's written that the man responsible had a, an ideologically fuzzy tapestry of extreme thoughts tied to rampant violence. I'm wondering, as a researcher, where do you begin to unpick the threads that make up these sorts of ugly tapestries?
1: So one of the things that's very interesting is the four of us that that wrote that come from different we all come from different disciplinary backgrounds. So I think ideologically fuzzy is a Mars term from religious studies, which I, I agree with the conceptually, but like from a, as a comm scholar, I would maybe frame it a little differently, but you start to unpick them by, by really looking through, or at least I do as a comm scholar, looking through how this person is narrating, right? What they're doing. He, he posted hundreds of pages, not digital pages, pages from like handwritten notebooks. He took pictures of them and posted them to his social media. So we could read most of it and how he's utilizing terminologies from different ideologies and how those are being used together or separately and where they're coming in. And and you start to look at over time, what seems to be the relationship, how deep is someone going? If you look at sort of like a manifesto, like Bravix manifesto, 1500 pages, very deep, not unproblematic, but like deep engagement with ideology, right? And you start to see more recent ones where it's a much less deep engagement with the purity of an ideology than it is contextually the ideology plus the current moment. And we saw that certainly in this, it wasn't really a manifesto, it was his diaries, but, but he would draw pieces from here and pieces from there that really seemed to be pieces that would support a need for violence, as opposed to any sort of deep commitment to a specific or even combination of ideologies themselves. Red is so someone who, who wanted to find a reason to be violent. Um, and that this is what made what he was able to make sense out of was these pieces from the various ideologies. And that's what I think Amar means by fuzzy, right? Like, it's not a deeply held commitment to any one thing. It's, it's just bits and bobs cobbled together to make sense out of his need to promote and commit violence.
2: The attacker was Mauricio Garcia. It seemed to throw a lot of people for a loop that this was a Hispanic man who nevertheless had these long-standing neo-Nazi views. How does his status as Hispanic matter to our understanding of his crimes?
1: So – I mean, as we, we argue in the piece and as as many other people have argued, racial identity is much more complex than we tend to make it out to be based, particularly when we're basing it in morphology, right? In, in people's visual appearance. Identity and identification are really complex things in terms of a person's identification with particularly extremist ideology. And he is in no way... um not even remotely, the first person of color to identify with neo-Nazi or white supremacist ideology. I think in the paper, we talk about several cases. But you also have, in particular, because of immigration, because of of changes post-World War II, there's a strong strand of far-right, in particular, Nazi-tinged extremism that comes out of South America, just based on where people emigrated to after they left Germany after the war, in particular, former Nazis. So it, it's it's not as simple as saying, oh, white people are the only people that support white supremacy. In fact, it's much more complex than that. But people really struggle with complex categorization and inconsistency in categorization. It doesn't make sense often. And so there was a very large debate about that. But his writing is clearly, clearly pro Nazi, right? He's clearly pro-white supremacist and pro-Nazi. And and it's sometimes can be difficult to understand how someone who would see themselves as less than would support that. But ultimately, he gained something out of this, the hierarchies that he saw in place there, even if he wasn't necessarily through race at the top of the hierarchy, if that makes sense. There were other parts of it. And this is where the gender piece became so important to the, the article and understanding how... His views around gender both undergird his extreme misogyny and his racial understanding. And this comes from a, a form of analysis called intersectionality, intersectional analysis, which looks at the way systems of or structures of power interact to produce certain effects and differential effects for different people. So if you just look at his race and say, well, it makes no sense that he's a white supremacist because he's Hispanic and identifies, he says he's Hispanic then you're missing part of the picture because one of the main things he, he deeply identified with in neo-Nazi and white supremacist culture was the status of masculinity. He saw Aryan masculinity as the absolute apogee of masculinity of what every man should strive to be. And, and that is a gendered framework, right? He, he saw the domination of women as something that was very important for establishing a person's status or a man's status as a man. And that fits with the white supremacist and neo-Nazi ideology, right, that he was talking about, as well as the, it, it aligns in certain ways with the incel ideology that he was espousing as well. So that gendered piece tied to his race is a really important intersection at which to understand what's going on and that most people keep separate in their analysis of these things, or a lot of people keep separate in their analysis of these things that can help explain why someone who is not white would support white supremacy.
2: I did also notice that some of the people who were expressing confusion at how this could be were non white white supremacists. And I did think, I, I do think you know how this circle is squared, actually. I, I don't believe you.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, but that's part of the misdirection, right? It can't really be that thing because it's not the cookie cutter example.
2: You mentioned earlier people like Alex Jones who have propagated these false flag scenarios. With this case, we saw the world's richest man, Elon Musk, and the owner of Twitter postulating about psyops. What does it mean when these sort of conspiracy theories, I guess, come out of the shadows and get thrust very much into the mainstream?
1: I mean, from my perspective as a, a communication scholar, scholar of communication, one of the things that we're very interested in is is the public sphere and public communication, particularly around politics. And so for me, it's it's very concerning when people of with audiences of this scale promote conspiracy theories against essentially institutions, right? So as we've seen with the polarization over the last decade now in the U.S., But the extreme polarization in the last six, seven years, this sort of idea of of promoting mistrust of public institutions, particularly the media, but also government in particular ways feeds into ultimately whether that is, I'm not saying whether that's the intention of people like Elon Musk or Alex Jones, I don't know. But it feeds into a larger fracturing of the democratic political order and our social and cultural norms in ways that have been shown now to produce violence, right? Part of the primary motivation of people who said they were, who, who stormed the Capitol of the US on January 6th, right? Is mistrust of institutions. So it's really problematic that people in, with very large audience followings utilize those sort of narratives as a way to gain clicks or get people to buy products or do any number of things to make, to make money or to, to make them more famous when it has these sort of deleterious effects.
2: Uh, more generally, I guess, uh, I was wondering what you thought about the recent rise of large language models and AI in terms of the misinformation sphere. I, just to give an example, I was in the the replies of some stupid tweet the other day, and I noticed one person replying just had the the tinge of a robot to them. And I looked at the rest of their replies, and I was – 80% sure that they weren't a human being. But I was just wondering what you thought it might mean as we see these things grow in popularity that you'll never really be able to trust that somebody is real.
1: Yeah, I like, I like that the tinge of a robot to them. I like that. It's funny. So I, I think that's definitely a... Very big potential problem. I know some people have been concerned about the mass production of manifestos. There's a potential for a lot of different usages in relation to extremism. I kind of revert back to, again, common media scholar, revert back to... Do you, do you remember when Microsoft released Tay? Back
0: mm. when,
1: right, the chatbot?
2: That instantly became racist.
1: Right, in 24 hours. In less than 24 hours, the internet, right? The the, the for the lulls boys... And folks out on the internet turned her into a, a, a Nazi. She was a Nazi, a racist Nazi, right? A white supremacist, racist Nazi. And so Microsoft took her down, cleaned her up, put in some new protection rules, and then released Zoe as an option who would just leave a conversation. Right. But that was essentially a language model training issue, right? The because she was interactive, because Tay was interactive, right? Huge swaths of the internet went and interacted with her and um, taught her how to be a racist Nazi. <laughs> so, it's concerning in the sense that we think about these things, instead of thinking about them as socio-technical systems, where there are people and technology involved, we tend to think about either the people or the technology. LLMs have a variety of issues beyond this, and our use of them has a variety of issues beyond extremism as a, as a case. But like we can't divorce the fact that, that, that it requires a large number of people or engagement or human thought to make LLMs do the things they do. So we have to think of them as a interconnected because sociotechnical doesn't mean plugged together. It means inter, intertwined, right? Intertwined human technological system. And so I think we still need to be approaching an understanding of why at this moment in our social and cultural context, this is becoming so okay with so many people that that these ideas are unquestioningly okay. And that this is what at least people who are dominating particular kinds of spaces are forwarding and finding ways to be resilient to that, finding ways to speak up, even though it's complicated. And this is why some of the legislation in particular in the U.S., because that in some ways sort of guides, affects other places, is really important. Some of the cases are very, very important right now around social media and online media use and and protections.
3: In Australia at the moment, actually, there's a discussion about the need for the government to introduce laws to better regulate online content, including in relation to hate speech and violent or extremist rhetoric. I guess leaving aside the the different or the jurisdictional differences between, uh, say, Australia and the United States, how do you think it's most useful to go about examining that question, particularly as it relates to the expression, these kinds of Nazi expressions that are whether as websites or on Telegram, how to respond to that from a I guess a, a legal or political perspective?
1: So this is like the $64 million question. If I had the answers to this, I would be set for life. No, I mean I think it's I think it's really it's a tricky, tricky question because it's it's the convening of many rights which are are fundamental to sort of democratic engagement. So I'm I'm generally tend to be extremely pro-free speech, right? I'm very American in that way. But part of the problem is that we're we're not talking about the literal public square, right? When we're talking about platforms, platforms are actually private space that we use in very large collectives. And policies of that exist already can be utilized and they're not being utilized fully in terms of these sort of engagements for a variety of reasons, right? The extreme far right has been very successful in muddying the waters between political speech and and basically extremism. And when I say political speech, I mean normative or mainstream political speech and extremism at this juncture, which makes pulling content very difficult because you're at that borderline. And I and I don't particularly want content companies, I don't particularly want, our rather platforms, to be the arbiters of what is acceptable speech. I don't think that's okay either. So it's a tricky wicket. But they can do better at just ensuring their own regulations, like just ensure your own policies. Let's start there as a, as a framework they could do things like more algorithmic suppression. They know algorithmic suppression does some good in certain cases, but the push to recommender systems is is very strong, right? The the use of them to optimize, right, the platform is is very strong. So more work could be done around balancing the need for business efficiency and maximization of benefit and social good or social welfare. Certainly that could be a big thing, but we have to be very careful because we do refer to online s- social media platforms, particularly very open platforms, as the public square. And they are not. On its face, if we're thinking about the global population, there's billions of people who are not connected to social media. Billions. So if that is the new public square, then there are billions of people excluded from the public square, right? It's, it's, a, it's a particularly tricky Problem. It feels that way, but that doesn't make it the truth in terms of dealing with it, both legally and in practice. And I think more importantly, if we look at the history of new technologies, let's go back and think about radio, think about television, let's think about telephony. Those of all, we've, we've managed to successfully regulate all of them, even with very tricky problems. So it's not impossible to regulate them while being protective of our values, such as free speech and engagement. But one of those values, certainly in the online space must also be safety, right? Unlike the radio, you can't necessarily dox people and swap people like those tactical forms of silencing, which are true forms of silence. And the goal of them is to silence someone from speaking to get them not to speak online are are new and, and need to be dealt with. And they're physically dangerous. They're not just bullying or well, even bullying is physically dangerous to some people um, when it's extreme in this case. So there, there are needs that need to be balanced. Free speech can't be the only thing that we think about. We also have to think about real harms done to people, but it is very tricky to manage and it has to be managed with a respect to like both inter- transnational and local needs, which is complicated. Well, Ashley, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks so
2: much for joining us. If people want to find you, you are on Twitter still at Matthias. Are you on threads yet?
1: I I am not, for a variety of reasons. I'm debating whether I'm going to stay broadly on, on social media uh, in the next. We'll see what happens. Things are interesting these days.
2: Indeed they are. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We will be back next week. See you later. See you then. <laughs> experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out.
3: Go to callitout.com.au
1: a 3CR supporter. Australia's energy market is broken.
3: Right, but co-power gives you better energy?
1: Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a co-power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and co-power today and take the power back.
2: Victorian Energy Fact Sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear
0: advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter.